Okay, better. Um, welcome to Spirit Rock, uh, Dharma and Recovery. I was thinking again how lucky we are to have this group. Uh, not something that existed uh, when I got sober. <laughs> so, uh, thank you, Spirit Rock. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of retreats uh, uh, um, that are coming up. There's one in two weeks, if you're interested, in, it's in Northern California, uh, an eight-day silent retreat uh, that I'm co-teaching. Flyers are here. I'm also teaching in Colorado in June up in, in the Rockies at the Rocky Mountain Eco-Dharma Retreat Center, uh, which is like half an hour west of Boulder. Uh, beautiful place, and uh, that's going to be a... Buddhism 12-step retreat. So if you're interested in taking a little trip, easy flight from Oakland into Denver, rent a car or get a van, get a ride, come up. It's going to be great. My friend George will be uh, managing that retreat. He's a yo-yo champion, uh, (laughs) which I know he'll pull out the yo-yos at the end of the retreat. So that alone would make it worthwhile. Um, so uh, what else do I want to say I've been away I was in Ireland for two weeks and uh, I feel like we gave them their weather back like I I feel like California it's been a long time since I felt like I was living in California Uh, so it's nice to have this weather actually the wet my daughter is over there studying doing a semester abroad in Dublin and, uh, and the weather was better there in January and February and March <laughs> than it was here. So, go figure. Uh, anyway. Um, it is, it's a, uh, it's um, a really, it is a really beautiful place if you ever get a chance to go there. And I did get to uh, do a little teaching there too. Uh, I went to Belfast and taught a day long at the Zen Center there and gave a talk in, outside of Dublin. So um, there are people interested in this stuff around the world, at least uh, around that part of the world. So pretty sweet. Um, and uh, what else did I want to report? Well, those of you who have heard me give more than like two or three Dharma talks you can guess what I've been doing with my free time the last two days. Anybody here who's a pays attention. Some people just don't pay attention, Doug. I don't know what it is. Uh, anyway, there's a golf tournament going on, so, you know. <laughs> Nobody cares. It's sad. Uh, they're going to just... Uh, they're selling off golf courses now these days, you know, because they're... Yeah, thanks. Uh, anyway, because, you know, they usually are in nice places. And why should we let people play golf when we could sell the land for, you know, McMansions. Okay. Uh, You didn't come here to hear about that. But, uh, you know, I didn't ask you to come here. You know, you you came here of your own free accord, you know. Don't put expectations on me, all right? I'm just a human being trying to survive. And it's difficult these days to survive. I actually stopped watching the news channels when I was in Ireland, I watched about Brexit. That was funny. (laughs) 
But because uh, it made me feel better about America. It's like, oh, we're not the only stupid people. Uh, but then when I came back, it's like, okay, never mind. The playoffs are almost here, right? So we've got something to pay attention to that's good for us. Um, so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to meditate, in case you were wondering. And then we're going to talk. That's about it. Yeah, pretty boring. You could be out having fun. But uh, this is what we do here. Um, yeah, but, but uh, I'm kind of I'm, I'm feeling full up with uh, Dharma, so hopefully something spills out that's useful. Um, so let's begin uh, by sitting and... Uh, and what I typically do for those who haven't been with me is um, I give some guidance and try to get you kind of started. And, and if you're not familiar with meditation, hopefully I give you enough instruction to kind of get navigate for yourself. And then, and then I let it be quiet uh, for a good part of the sit uh, so that um, people can just work internally. Well, the starting point of our practice is, is our posture. Not in the sense of sitting in some special way or looking good, but, but rather sitting in a way that allows us to be comfortable and to be still and to be awake. So the, the risk of lying down is, or getting too comfortable is that we fall asleep. So we try to find a kind of balance or it's a posture that's manageable and allows us to be present. And you can close your eyes or you can just lower your gaze so that you're not looking around at anything. As we want to turn our attention inward. And when we do that, we start to become aware of our body and our senses quite naturally without any real meditation practice or form. (coughs) And it's helpful to allow the body to soften and relax the muscles in the jaw, just your facial muscles, your eyes, your forehead. Softening the shoulders. And relaxing the belly, 
letting the chest be open. There's a sense of being receptive, being open. There's a kind of physical surrender as we try to let go of the armoring, the ways that we hold our body that are create tension. So even in that softening, there can be a, a sense of kind of slight anxiety or fear that can come up if we're used to having that armoring, that tightness. But if our practice is going to really settle, we need to be able to feel safe, let go in that way, trust that it's okay to be open physically, spiritually, emotionally at least during this practice time. You can see if you can feel your body as a single object. this energetic field. There are different elements of that experience, the different sensations, whether it's a feeling of the weight of the body, that density, the feeling of the temperature of the body, warm or cool. Any pulsing or tingling Feelings of lightness as well. There are some points in the body where there will be very clear sensations and might be other places where there's very little that you feel. So we just observe that 
we begin with this general body awareness and then bring in as well awareness of sound so in a meditation hall there's very little to hear besides my voice maybe the fans and the air conditioning a few sounds from your neighbors But just open to sound, see if you also can hear sounds in your own body. Many people hear a kind of white noise in the ears. You might hear your breath or Hear yourself swallowing or hear your heartbeat. So all of these things are the sounds and sensations just by trying to pay attention the mind becomes more focused. These are felt experiences. There are no words associated with them. So there doesn't have to be any thought. We can just feel, just hear. Very simple, this experience. can also bring in awareness of mood just to notice what you're feeling right now is there any emotion present it might be very subtle or it might be quite obvious depending on what's going on for you right now But it's important to observe that part of our experience because mood is so influential in our thinking. It affects our thoughts so much. If we don't see that, then we'll often miss the roots of what's going on in the mind.
you can you be aware of all these things simultaneously body, sound, mood see what happens to your attention if you try to hold all those things at once in your awareness actually forced to pay very close attention. But you don't want to turn that into an efforting or a striving. Just want to see if you can receive all this experience just with openness And finally letting the attention come to rest with the breath. Oh, the breath comes into the foreground while the rest of your experience is still there but or in the background. Follow the breath at the nostrils, the touch sensation, the air coming in and out. Or if it's easier for you, you can just follow the movement of the belly, rising and falling. Whichever place is more natural and easeful to pay attention to the breath. Noticing in, out, in, out.
So just start to work with the breath. When the mind wanders, try to be gentle with that. Acknowledge the wandering mind. And gently come back, start again. It's natural, this thinking process. Very natural for it to interrupt our attention. The key is to just keep coming back without adding in analysis or judgment or self-criticism or even really trying to control the experience. And the best way you can hold the attention with the breath is to pay very close attention. Feel the details of the breath coming in and out.
So I'd like to see if there are any questions about meditation. Uh, Andy is holding a microphone uh, for anybody who has a question. in the back. Hi. Um, I'm pretty new to meditation. And um, I actually asked this question before, but I wanted to get your take on it because I had the same thing happen. Um, So (laughs) uh, when you're sitting and you have pain in a certain area... um, mainly in my posterior. <laughs> what, what do you do about that? Well, the, the encouragement is always to try to pay attention to things without sort of uh, resistance and without trying to fix them necessarily. Um, and and with you know strong sensations and uncomfortable sensations, um, that's a that can be a really uh, illuminating practice actually uh, to work with our resistance to the discomfort, um, not by pushing through it, but actually by opening to it sort of with curiosity. So one of the things about uh, discomfort in the body is that we are so quick to try to fix it that we really never get to explore it and see what it actually feels like. So if you, the, kind of the, the way the Buddha describes this, he says it's like having two, being struck by two darts the first dart is one that's just the sensation itself. And the second dart is the mental reaction to the sensation, the resistance to it. He says that if you can let go of the first or the second dart, then the first dart becomes manageable. Um, and so, so in practical terms, what we do is we sort of take the attention to that point of sensation, which is just the opposite of what our instinct is, right? Which is to get away from it. But we go toward it, and as we go toward it, we'll, we'll feel that kind of resistance to it. And that's where the mental, the second dart is. And we have to kind of release that. And it, and it is, there is kind of a physical resistance, like we tend to tighten around it, Right. And so it's kind of like, okay, I'm just going to go with this. I'm just going to allow myself to feel it. And when we kind of cross that threshold into just allowing and just being with it, it can have a really radical transforming effect on the experience itself. Um, it, because it turns out that a lot of the problem is in the mind. 
and and uh, unless it's a like a chronic pain or a, or a, an acute problem, you know, like you're injuring yourself or you've been injured or you're sick or something, uh, it's something you you can generally work with, um, and you work with it until until you're not able to kind of let go of the resistance until the resistance kind of takes over and, and then you change posture very mindfully and try to get into another posture where you relieve that discomfort. Uh, but I've found that to be uh, one of the really most important elements of my practice was was really learning to work with that and it, because it also opens up a whole other field of investigation uh, which kind of ends the kind of end point of that investigation is investigating our fear of death because pain is essentially a signal that we're in danger of dying right the the the, the uh, you know uh, survival mechanism of pain is there to protect us from harm and ultimately from harm that will kill us so, and so uh, it, I know that might sound like a stretch, but actually that's where it, it goes to, right? So, so we're actually starting to work with this very primal energy and this very primal fear. Uh, and so when we can start to work with that in this very simple way, just around discomfort in the body, it can open up a lot and it can be very freeing and, and there can be a lot of insight that comes through it. And I'll say that it also can be a very strong concentration practice because if it's an intense sensation, it's much easier to pay attention to than the subtle sensation of the breath. So you, that'll, that will hold your attention very well. Um, I have a whole section of my workbook. I, I think it's in step six or seven where it, it, a section is called The Effort and the Dharma of Pain. And it goes through all of this and more in describing that. So... They're on the table outside for $10, which is a bargain, by the way. Well, hello. The microphone will come to you. Andy lives to serve. All right. um, This is, so I've been meditating for, I don't know, about six months now, Uh and following kind of like dealing with my thoughts is kind of just like as they aware I kind of categorize them or kind of toss them off but lately I've been kind of wondering about quality of thoughts and thinking about you know which which thoughts are quality and worthy thoughts and wondering Uh if you had some advice on on that as it gets kind of deeper into thoughts right which ones are quality thoughts Good question. Um, so, in the beginning of practice, however long the beginning lasts, but you know, for a while, we kind of just work on letting go of all thoughts uh, because it's we're so conditioned. To just get stuck on them, and and uh, and so we just to learn to let go of thought is the initial training of this practice in some sense. Um, 
least a, a significant part of that training. And uh, and so we, we have to be very careful because um, the thoughts are very seductive and they're, they are deceptive. They all claim to be important, you know. And further, when things start to get quiet, we want entertainment. So thoughts become just a, a form of entertainment. So it's, it's um, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not telling you anything you don't know because you've been trying to do this, right? So, so the... So in order to distinguish when there's a thought that's really uh, valuable to pursue, I think the best way to, to know, realize that a thought isn't just a typical thought of grasping or dreaming or you know remembering, that it's actually kind of like something that's opening up, uh, is to feel it in the body. You know, most thoughts leave a residue or create it, some kind of uh, tension or sometimes like a chemical you'll feel in the body. It's like, ooh, you know, you can kind of feel them there. Just like not really good for you, you know. Uh, but sometimes there's this kind of clarity where it's like, and something's unfolding and there's no, and you don't feel any, like if you if you check back with yourself, there's no grasping in there. There's no sort of, and, and the word grasping isn't quite the right word, but it's just trying to point to how the how the body reacts. And the other thing is that if it's if it's something that's really opening up, it will it'll kind of go. You don't. It's almost like you're not thinking it. It's just like thinking itself and you're kind of like with it. And then if, if it's like a solving kind of like, like, wow, I see something and, and you're kind of like putting it together. Once it's together, it stops. <laughs> this is a real indicator because most thought, thoughts don't stop. Most thoughts just trigger more thoughts. And so if it's really a useful thought, it'll kind of come to a resolution. And then you'll realize, oh, okay. And then you'll be able to come back. You know. um, but we just have to be really careful with that. Because uh, as I say, there's so many ways that they'll kind of deceive us. But that's, that's how I distinguish just the felt experience of the thought. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, well, I think maybe that's enough for now. We'll take about a ten-minute break, and we'll come back, and I'll, I'll think of something to say. And uh, as I said, there are copies of my workbook out there, uh, if you're interested, and flyers of retreats.
Okay, so, so maybe that was 15 minutes, I don't know. Um, like I should put the microphone on it just so we can um, I, I, I do enjoy just the, the feeling when everybody's talking with each other uh, you know the, uh, it's one thing about the recovery world obviously uh, you know there's a lot of sharing that goes on sometimes in Buddhist centers you know everybody gets very serious and like there can be this attitude that like being quiet is spiritual you know, not necessarily like cat burglars are very quiet. You know? <laughs> so it's not necessarily a sign of being spiritual at all. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk tonight about effort, uh, in both in practice and in recovery. And I know, you know, I often talk about the sort of step of the month. Um, and this being April, that would be the uh, fourth step. <laughs> Which, uh, But it's kind of, I just, uh, I may touch on that, but that's not going to be so much the theme tonight. So if you were coming and hoping for that, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, um, maybe next year. But, uh, <laughs> so that's bad. Um, but I've been, I'm thinking about effort, and I, and I realized when I, when I started thinking about this topic for a talk, I realized that the very first time I gave like a formal Dharma talk, I gave the t- talk on right effort. And that was uh, in the spring of 1996 in Berkeley, that West Nisker's Wednesday night group, uh, where I kind of got uh, raised up as a Dharma teacher. So, so I realized... That, that that's a really important theme for me. You know, that's a, it's a theme that uh, has been there uh, certainly since then. And, and of course it goes back to my first attempts at practice. And uh, in the first time I tried Buddhist meditation, in fact, it was... Uh, I don't. Uh, I'll give you the details. I'll give you the dirty part of the details because that's the fun part. I had gotten drunk the night before, and this was before I got sober. Duh. <laughs> and it was, it was this. It would have been the summer of 1980, and I was dating a woman who was doing Buddhist meditation, and I was doing transcendental meditation (TM). And I thought, and we had a bad fight, you know, because I was drunk and I was an asshole. It, what, not that I was always an asshole, but I was drunk, a drunken asshole that night. Uh, and my solution the next day was, well, I know how I can make our relationship better. I'll start doing Buddhist meditation like her, right? Now that's what I call alcoholic thinking. Right? <laughs> like, the problem isn't that I was drunk and acted like an asshole. The problem is I'm doing the wrong meditation. You know, that'll fix it. So I went to the Shambhala Center. I was living in Burlington, Vermont, actually, 
This was around the time that Ben and Jerry's came into uh, existence. They had a little store on the corner. We used to stand in line to get the Ben and Jerry's, their first store downtown Burlington. Um, and uh, I went to the Shambhala Center, and, and they said, okay, uh, here's how you do it. You, you pay attention to your breath. And I was like, okay, and then what? Well, that's all you do. They just pit. And I was like, that doesn't help. You know, that was just not enough for me. It just like, I felt totally adrift. Like, what, what do I, what do you mean I just pay attention to my breath? How do I, what do I, you know, and, and, uh, and so I didn't even know how to make that effort. You know, I didn't even know what the thing I was supposed to be efforting to do was. But soon I, I'm, I'm, I, I see that I'm, it would be easy for me to tell you the whole story of my meditation life. But I, I'll just say that, that it was soon after that that I was exposed to Joseph Goldstein and read his first book, The Experience of Insight. And then I took a, a meditation class and I had moved back to L.A. by then and and uh, and then went on a retreat. But that that uh, Thanksgiving of 1980. That's really when my practice started. And and so I, I started out, though, with this... Uh, when I started to work with Joseph's... The practice Joseph taught, Vipassana meditation, there was this very structured way to do it uh, that, that was taught. And some of you, I'm sure, have been exposed to this, that it's the Burmese noting practice where you note everything and you, as you're meditating, and you know, thinking, thinking, and hearing, hearing, and feeling, feeling, and you're, and you're sort of, and I really liked that because it gave me something to do because I didn't know what to do, like pay attention to my breath. It was like, okay, I've got my breath. Okay, it's gone. Now what do I do? <laughs> so um, I worked with that very diligently for a, a while, for about a year, and uh, and I had some moments. I went on some more retreats, and I, I had some moments when it started to feel like I was meditating. But a lot of the time, it felt like I was imitating meditation. Uh, you know that I was just kind of going through the motions, but because I didn't feel any very much happening, or I wasn't aware of feeling much happening. Maybe stuff was happening, but it was. Uh, then the following fall, I went on the three-month retreat at Insight Meditation Society, and I kept persisting at this practice until I finally couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> it's called a surrender, right? I I just gave up, um, and kind of almost in the, I think of it as in the moment of giving up. I don't know that it was so immediate, but there was this kind of transition where I let go of this real form where I was really making an effort to do it in this, to do it right, right? It was very much to do it right. Because if I do it right, then I'm going to get the good stuff. I'm going to be rewarded. It's going to work. And I stopped and something happened. You know, something opened up and I had a different experience. And of course, at that point, I'm like a month or so into a silent retreat, so 
it's not too surprising that something happens when you know uh, and but it started to really change my view about effort and start to think about it very differently and I started to see that before I had been making too much effort I'd been trying too hard and that actually the trying was actually blocking me from having sort of a more organic meditative experience an experience of just kind of feeling peaceful and uh, calm you know the body like uh, deactivated the mind kind of open and this bright awareness that comes when you sit and do intensive practice and it can come you know in daily life as well in daily practice or in daily life just in those moments when we just kind of let everything falls away and we're just present and you know it particularly happens like in nature when you just sort of suddenly you know you're in your woods or something it's like oh wow you just feel it right but but it's certainly something that's a part of the meditation experience and and it's one of the things that people strive for in the meditation experience is to get to that place where you just feel really at ease uh, where you're not working hard to make it happen and when your mind where your mind isn't just like running all over the place um, you know so so uh, so I kind of started to you know think of meditation as something different uh, and and more the that effort was something more subtle than what I had understood it to be uh, now you know one of the things about retreats and I know a certain number of you I don't know how many have been on have been on silent retreats like that and you know that after certainly at the end of the retreat there can be this real feeling like okay I've arrived or I'm really you know this is just a beautiful place I'm in and I'm just going to stay here now Uh, and uh, because of the nature of uh, reality (laughs) that changes Um, and, and particularly it changes because what allowed you to get to that place was that you were practicing meditation 16 hours a day you know uh, not just sitting but you're walking meditation eating meditation you know uh, every everything is meditation you're silent you're just so though that allows you to get to this place and so when you go back to your daily life uh, that naturally fades fades away so it takes a while for a three-month retreat to wear off uh, but um but it did, and and uh, but that approach to practice didn't really. And and when I gave that first Dharma talk in nineteen ninety six, it was very much about trying to sit in this kind of uh, uh, easeful, uh, open. Uh, non-striving way Uh, because that's kind of the for me that's how I practice and and meditation teachers tend to teach the things that work for them Uh, and and 
clearly different things work for different people. Um, but this is something the Buddha addressed, and there's there's a famous well, his his simile for this was uh, talking about uh, and tuning a, a lute. I guess it was a lute. I guess they had lutes in those days. Uh, the same thing as a guitar, you know, just tuning the strings. And that if you tune it too tight, you know, the string pops or it just gets too high and too tight. And if it's too loose, blah, 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 there's no tone at all coming out of it. And that being in tune with an instrument is getting it right in in the right spot that's, that's a balanced and harmonious point. And that our effort in meditation needs to be like this. That it needs to be enough that we're alert, we're here, we're present, but not that we're, you know, trying to make it happen and trying to control it. And there's a famous story um, of the the Buddha's attendant, uh, Ananda. Uh, And Ananda was often the, the sort of the butt of the Buddha's teaching. Like he would he would use Ananda as an example of, like, oh, no, you're wrong, Ananda. <laughs> Ananda would say something, and the Buddha would be like, no, don't say that, Ananda. Uh, and, and, but actually, the story is after the Buddha's death, so the Buddha doesn't get to say anything about it. About it. Um, but the story is that um, uh, three months after the death of the Buddha, there was uh, convened a council that was going to... Uh, put together the teachings, kind of re, uh, everybody was going to talk about what they knew from the Buddhist teachings and kind of try to organize it and systematize it so that they could keep it together and, they, and that it would be coherent, that they would all kind of agree, this is what the Buddha taught and this is what we heard over these years. And, and Ananda was needed at this council because he had been with the Buddha for 25 years and he'd heard everything the Buddha had taught during that time. That was actually his requirement when the Buddha asked him to be his attendant. Ananda told him, I will do it, but I want to hear everything that you teach. And if, if I have to be away, if you send me away to do something, when I come back, I want you to tell me what you taught when I was away, too, because I don't want to miss anything. So, and, and furthermore, Ananda was said to have had uh, the gift of perfect recall. So there was a belief that he would he knew everything the Buddha had taught and that he would be able to recite it. So he was needed at the council, but there was just one problem. Only fully enlightened monks were invited to the council. And because Ananda had been very busy those 25 years taking care of the Buddha, he hadn't had time to do the kind of intensive meditation practice that would have allowed him to have that ultimate breakthrough of enlightenment, whatever that is. This is just a story, but it's a good story. So it's said that during these months, uh, Ananda practiced and practiced and practiced, and, and his meditation got very deep, and you know his mind gets very bright and still and awake, but is there still not quite, you know, he doesn't quite cross over. And the night before the council was to convene, he's in his kuti, this little meditation hut, and he's doing walking meditation and sitting meditation and walking meditation and sitting, and it's just very intense, very, and 
in the middle of one walking session, he stops and kind of asks himself, like, what's not working here? What, what, and he remembers the Buddha's teaching about effort, about not making too much effort, not making too little effort. And he realizes, I'm striving, I'm making too much effort. So it's said that he, in that moment, he said, let me just rest for a moment. And that he got down on his little mat, and just as his head hit the ground, hit the Maybe he had a pillow. I don't think he would have had a pillow, but we'll say he had a pillow. Just as his head hit the pillow, it opens up. The, the breakthrough, it's called, right? This awakening, this full enlightenment. And he just lies there for the remainder of the night, just in nirvanic bliss. And then as the council assembles in the morning, Ananda materializes, kind of like Star Trek, you know, beams, beams himself in because now because he's fully enlightened, he's able to move through space and move through walls. Uh, it's one of the benefits uh, <laughs> that comes with it. Not the goal, but it's just a side effect. And so everybody, they all know that he's enlightened now because he's able to do this. So everybody says, ah, Ananda made it. So, but I love this story of that his breakthrough comes as he rests as he relaxes, as he releases. It's a story that's often told on retreats at a certain point when the teachers feel like people are getting, you know, too, too caught up in that. And, and so I, I think it's a, it's a very telling uh, story and a, and a good one to keep in mind. And it, and it is very much what I kind of had realized in my own practice, not quite in such a dramatic fashion, but uh, that I could open up if I didn't make so much effort. But to remember that being in tune isn't making no effort, right? And this is where the challenge comes for most of us. Like, well, what is the right amount of effort? <laughs> you know, as if you could know. And, and one of the things about effort is that it, it always has to be... Uh, aligned or engaged with the present moment's needs. Like there are some times when you need more effort and there are other times when you need less effort. And the only way you can know that is by very being very attuned, being very mindful. So one of the things that we do when we're meditating is we want to track the our need for effort as we're sitting. So as you're sitting, it's like, Oh, wait, I'm really going off. I really need to make a little bit more effort to come back. Oh, wait, I'm getting kind of tight here. I really need to soften up. So we have to kind of track that. And it changes over the course of even a relatively short period of of sitting, right? You might start out like, oh, I need to really, like, uh, you know, get my mind focused here. Okay, now, and like, you know, 10, 15 minutes in, it's like, okay, I'm... I'm nice and focused now. And then 20 minutes in, you're starting to get too relaxed, right? Oh, now I need to brighten up again. And, and so, you know, we're kind of tracking it throughout. But I think the, the bigger picture of effort is not so much even about the moment-to-moment. That's part of it. But the, the bigger point is the effort 
to maintain practice over time. And, and, and that, that applies to a, certain, a single period of meditation, but it's much more important over the days and weeks and months and years of practice. And this is where we can see a direct parallel to recovery. Because in recovery, how is it that we identify somebody's where they are in their recovery? The first thing that we identify is the amount of time they've been in recovery. And, and, and the same applies if you're uh, trying to get into a teacher training at Spirit Rock. The first thing they'll ask you is, how many years have you been practicing? And how many meditation retreats have you been on? They won't say, okay, you won on a retreat. How did it go on that retreat? They'll just be like, they just assume that if you've been on retreats, then you have grown. You have evolved. And the same, we kind of say the same with recovery. I'm not going to, it's not an absolute. But, you know, that with time comes a certain amount of wisdom and a certain amount of maturity, a certain amount of growth. And it, and we can't speed up the process, right? It, it, no amount of working the steps will get, will make you any less a newcomer than you are in your first 30 days, you know? And the, you know, you, you can't kind of get ahead of the process. It's the time that we, we put into it. And, you know, that, that uh, you know, I'm kind of going both ways now to get, like, look at meditation and recovery as well. With meditation, what I find is often the hardest thing for people to do is to find the time, right? To find the time to practice. So this is the same thing. It's, it's putting in that time. And Whereas with recovery, it's, you know, getting, getting, just doing it, right? I just, I'm, I'm actually working with a newcomer now, which I haven't done in quite a while. I try to avoid them. Um, but somehow this guy caught me, you know. I, I, it was like he, he emailed me and it sounded like he was like, had it going on. And then as soon as I talked to him, I was like, okay, no. You're, you haven't started. And seeing how, you know, the, the effort in recovery, what's the effort that we make? We make an effort to let go. <laughs> we don't make an effort to do something like, I need to go out and really, you know, conquer the world. No, I have to stop. <laughs> I have to stop doing this. And, uh, I mean, it's so interesting, you know, to work with somebody who's like, and this, hopefully he's not going to listen, he actually listens to some of my talks, but so be it. Uh, just that, uh, you know, he's, he's addicted to a, uh, this drug I never heard of, which is one of the things that happens when you stay clean for 35 years. It's like, what? <laughs> they keep coming up with new shit, you know. And uh, thank God, you know, I, I remember being in a meeting early on my recovery where somebody said, 
you know, I just heard about this new beer, and I, and uh, I was. My first thought was, I wonder what that's like. And then my de- second thought was, that's none of my business. Uh, so that's kind of how it is with the new drugs. It's none of my business what they're like. But there was this immediate negotiation with him, which was, well, I can't stop right now because X, Y, and Z. I have these. I know what's going to happen. I've stopped before, and this is what happens. There's this withdrawal. And if I do that, I, can't, I have to t- have these responsibilities right now. And if I stop, I'll be sick, and I won't be able to do them. I, I was like, okay, so if you want to work with me, you have to stop. And so just tell me when you're going to stop and I will work with you until then and then if you actually stop I'll continue to work with you you know thought that was pretty simple that's one you know you learn right <laughs> after you've been around a little while like oh yeah right there's always a reason not to quit there's always an excuse but um I'm, I'm trying to tie this back to effort. <laughs> maybe I can. Maybe I can't. But it, it's just, again, interesting to me that effort usually isn't what we think it is. You know, success, happiness, they don't come by some willful action, usually. They usually come with persistent intention. And it's, you know, this is why, you know, the Buddha puts intention as the kind of starting point of all karma. And it's, it's that intention. And intention is what gets me to sit on my cushion every day. I have the intention to practice. And I have this intention to stay with this practice and I have this intention to stay sober you know it's just and that's what day after day keeps me going whether it's good or bad and that's the hard part right that we want results we want results from our effort and when we don't get the results we want There's various ways, I imagine, we respond. But what occurs to me is that then I decide I'm making the wrong effort rather than thinking, oh, I'm not in control. Maybe I should make the most of this. Or maybe that thing, this is step three, to go back to March. Maybe that thing that I want isn't really what I'm supposed to have, you know. And so what can I make of this? Because, you know, we can, it's so easy for us to set up this idea of how we should be and how our life should be and, and be just working so hard to make that happen and it's just not happening and we're just in this struggle. And then when we stop and let go and just, ask, well, what is supposed to be happening? Something else just opens up, right? You know how that is, right? But, that, and, and, but we have to 
let go of that of that grasping before the other door kind of opens up. This is today. I'm, I'm working with mentoring some group, groups of mindfulness people who are training to be mindfulness teachers, and one of them today was sharing about having had a really tough time for a couple of weeks and, and just really being in a negative place and, and all these kind of turmoil and struggles. And, and then when she came to the group today and started talking and listening to everybody, it was like everything fell away. And it, it was like she, sometimes we don't... Uh, We have to kind of surrender before before we're able to really find the thing that we need. So that which is very much so that goes back to my description of being on the three month course, where I had to surrender. Like I thought that the way I needed to meditate was like this, you know. And it was only when I stopped trying to do that that something else opened up. And the same thing happened to me in my my work life, you know, that I thought I needed to be a rock and roll star, right? I thought I needed to be a musician. And as soon as I stopped trying to do that, life became a whole lot easier. You know, I found this whole other way of, of living. So, it, you know, we run into this uh, across the board. You know, if you, uh, again, going back to the steps, you know, we can have this idea of like, well, if I, I just need to get through these steps because then I'm going to be okay. You know? Then I'm going to be like all those people that are so serene in the meeting. You know? I'll be like them. And, and again, it's like, no, the, working the steps isn't this thing where you, you get through it and then you're okay. It's actually much more of something that turns into a way of being. I mean, I, I, I don't even think of the... I, I think that the, the term wor- working the steps isn't the most helpful term. Uh, I, in fact, a lot of times I don't know what that means. You know, because there's so... There's not much... Other than like writing an inventory and making amends, there aren't that many things to do that involve work, you know? that's much more to me a shift in consciousness or a shift in viewpoint or a shift in attitude. Turning, you know, step three isn't like, okay, I'd have to find God. Where's God? You know, know, that's not, it doesn't get me anywhere. But when I see that, oh, this is about not trying to control the world and accepting things as they unfold, and, and you know, if my butt hurts, that instead of trying to get away from that, I just sit with, a, with the pain, you know, that I, just, that I just try to accept life as it is. Wow, that, that's interesting. And then, right, it turns out to be a spiritual awakening, right? Wow, this is freedom to not fight anymore. Um, 
uh, like making amends. Like once I make those amends, then everything's going to be smooth in my life. It's like, yeah, and that person that you try to make amends to is like, screw you, you're not, I'm not, I'm not you know, you don't ever want to hear about your apology. It's like, oh, what? Oh, well, wait, this isn't doing what it's supposed to do. And then you realize, oh, well, that, I needed to hear that. Or, yeah, there's some wounds that I can't heal. How am I going to live with that? You know, um, I can't make this happen. You know, even you get to step 12, it's like, okay, having had a spiritual awakening, where's my spiritual awakening? I want my spiritual awakening. You know, uh, a lot of times I don't think we even, I think probably most of the time we don't see it. We don't know it's happened. You know, we don't even know what it is. Uh, I've had to really explore the question of what a spiritual awakening is. Because I had this idea that, like, okay, it's just going to be this, like, to the moon, you know, blissful experience. Something's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be so great. It's going to be better than LSD, you know. And, and, uh, and then you realize, oh, no, it's very subtle. You know, it's these subtle changes of attitude. And... and uh, that come about through showing up, you know. I mean, you know, guess what I told this newcomer besides you need to stop taking all those drugs? Go to meetings every day, you know. I didn't tell him, start working the steps, get a higher power. I just was like, just go to meetings, you know. Commit to not using and go to meetings. And that's what you have to do. For meditation, commit to sitting every day. You know, commit to sitting for a certain amount of time every day. Don't think that you're going to control your mind or that you're going to become really good at meditating. No. You'll have experiences where the meditation is great and then you'll have experiences where it doesn't seem like anything's happening and you keep doing it. And you'll have experiences where it feels like recovery is just totally happening your life is just really works now because you're clean and sober and you work the steps and then you'll be like you'll lose the job you'll lose the relationship you'll you know get stopped for speeding and you know I, just and you'll just keep showing up you know it's like oh right life so uh, I guess you know the, the my you know my my view about effort is that uh, I, I, I think it, I suppose it's pretty clear by now, but but that um, so much of it is about letting go, and and, uh, and yet never giving up. You know, that's the you know, that challenge. Uh, um, the. Uh, the practice of metta, which was, this is something we were covering in this mindfulness teacher training this month. And, uh, it was another place where it's so interesting because the, the way that people teach, you know, so metta is loving kindness for those who aren't familiar with that term, loving kindness. And it's a very important kind of meditation practice, uh, to, that kind of goes, with mindfulness and sometimes it's taught separately and sometimes it's taught as like integrated with mindfulness. But it's often taught 
as this very mechanical practice where you say these particular phrases and you you say, you know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe, or uh, may you be free from suffering. And you, you kind of you get a couple of phrases and you repeat them, and then you think about people you love, you think about yourself, you think about people you don't like, and you think about all beings. And, and there's kind of this step-by-step process and using the phrases, and it's very systematic. And it's it can really be a trap, an effort trap, right? Because it's like, okay, if I do this and this and this, then this is going to happen, right? Because what we assume is that, well, if I practice loving kindness, then my heart's going to open and I'm going to feel all this love for everybody. But it turns out that sometimes when you start to try to send loving kindness to people, you just get pissed off, you know? Or you realize, ooh, like, I've been kind of mean to them. And then you start to get pissed off at yourself, you know. And, it, 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 and all of a sudden it's like, wait, this isn't working the way I thought it was supposed to work. Come on. And uh, I, I need to, maybe I need to say more phrases. Maybe save them, say them faster, you know, do more. Uh, and of course, that we can't force ourselves into it, so we wind up once again in like, okay, I didn't get what I was looking for, so where, you know, what do I do now? <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, I guess what I do is I um, accept that, because right? the it turns out that loving kindness practice actually uh, is also an insight practice, and it's a mindfulness practice where we observe what arises rather than thinking that I'm going towards something rather I'm doing something and then I'm watching what happens out of it so that's the mindfulness of the experience itself rather than thinking I'm going to I'm going to make something happen um, and, and, and I think that that practice in particular is a really important practice because it is one that people can get caught up with and and you know that's my last book which is is kind of about that practice is kind of making the argument that loving kindness isn't even the meditation itself might not even be the most important part that it's rather a shift in an attitude than than a shift in um the way I feel. So, um, so you know, this kind of comes back to you know. I said the you know one of my themes as a Dharma teacher is is effort, and my first talk was on effort. My theme when I usually my theme when I speak at a twelve step meeting is showing up you know and, and showing up is kind of what I view as the key thing in, in my recovery and it was like first of all there's showing up for recovery right showing up for myself to, to let go but then it was just, and then it was showing up for meetings and then it was showing up for a job and then it was showing up for us going to school and then it was showing up for relationships and it was realizing that you know, my tendency was like, do something until it becomes uncomfortable and then change, shift gears, 
quit the job, get out of the relationship, you know, move to a different city. And that, that living like that meant that I never progressed in my life, emotionally, professionally, romantically, you know, nothing really progressed because it was, as soon as it got, you know, what's the expression when the going gets tough, you know, and for me, instead of the tough getting going, I, I got running away. When the going gets tough, I'm out of here. And, and so that to me, that's kind of like the, the foundation key to, to, to me for my recovery, but it's also the foundation of my meditation practice, right? Just showing up for it. Uh, and, and I often think that I might, I don't know, but I might be a second-rate meditator. I really don't know. It's hard to, hard to judge your own meditation. Sometimes it's good, but a lot of times it seems like crap. Uh, but it's been crap that I've been doing for 40 years every day. You know? So uh, I might not be good at it, but I know a lot about it. Because I've experienced all the different kinds of crap. And uh, that's what I'm sharing about. So uh, I, th- I seem to have run out of uh, things to say about this. So, And we're left with some time, which means I'm, I could give you guys a chance to say something if you like. Uh, either a question or a reflection or uh, a correction would be great too. Good evening. Thank you so much for uh, for that discussion. So much of what you did, what you mentioned, and so much of what I heard was expectation and the dropping of expectation. And for me, in sobriety, that was probably the thing I had the hardest time letting go. And in my meditation, my meditation has been about three years now, and it's that what you mentioned earlier when you were saying. You're sitting and you have you, you get this awareness and it's like after six months I, I got this point where similar to meetings, when I didn't do it, it felt different. And my meditations felt better when I didn't have expectations. I just sat. Yeah. And then when I had expect and I would grab a feeling, something that would really resonate and I try to hold on to it. And then I realized the power was not trying to do that. And from what you described, and I, I do a lot of yoga, and there's this this concept of stira and stuka, and of what? Of stira and stuka. It's this two concepts of effort. Okay. It's ease of effort and strength of effort. Uh-huh. And in posture, you try to maintain the balance of those two. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I heard. Yep. And I'm really curious to hear how that that journey has been for you. You've been doing this for 40 years, and do you still struggle with expectation every day? No. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't think I do. Uh, I have to make sure and check inside a little bit. Um, the thing is that um, the the quality of a particular period of meditation, that is the way it feels, the way it unfolds, 
is dependent upon causes and conditions. Traditional kind of Buddhist phrase, but it's an important phrase. So uh, when I sit down to meditate, I don't think of it as a discrete event that's happening outside of everything that's happened before that or outside of what just happened upstairs as my office is in my basement. You know, I, I realize that whatever is going to happen here is, is coming out of... I mean, it'll cha- it can change and I can... You know, in that moment, I'm creating new causes and conditions. You know, the, ca- the cause is the effort or the intention and the condition is the situation, kind of. So in that moment, I'm creating certain causes and conditions, but they're so preconditioned, you know, there's so much going into it that it's hard to think that I'm going to, that if I'm really agitated, that I'm going to be able to sit down and just go into this deeply peaceful state. There are also long-term causes and conditions, the long-term practice, and, and certain when you have uh, when you've gotten to certain uh, states of concentration repeatedly then the uh, brain circuitry, the wiring in your brain is able to get there more easily and so um, if if, if everything leading up to my sitting is pretty calm and you know energy is just kind of right then I'm able to, at times, go into places that really are pretty deep, but most of the time not. Uh, and so uh, there's this tremendous sense of acceptance because I've been on you know, long retreats where weeks into the retreat, I had a complete blow-up where my mind was just all over the place. And so even with the causes and conditions of being on a silent retreat for weeks, it doesn't guarantee that in this moment I'm going to be able to go deep uh, and so so uh, you know the, the, one of the things that I think is really important about meditating day after day year after year is that you get used to that the fact that there's all these different mind states that you go to that you don't you have a certain amount of control you know you can make a certain amount of effort but you can't make it happen so you kind of you're playing that edge all the time like what What's useful for me to do right now and what isn't so useful? Because the, the deeper states come with a deep, sta- a deep surrender, you know. But sometimes that deep surrender just winds up in falling asleep if there is enough energy there. So, you, you know, you can't just go, oh, just go into your deepest, like, let go. And it's like, no, I'm too sleepy, I'll just conk out. Right, so there's just no, there's just, it's, there's just so many subtle subtleties of it that it's not, there isn't expectation going on. It's just uh, more like when I sit down, it's like, huh, I wonder what's going to happen right now. You know, a, a little bit of curiosity. Yeah. It's a funny question, though. To me, it's a funny question. Yeah, hi.
Um, yeah, I just wanted to say I I found what you said about this escape mentality really really important and really resonated with me as well. Um, just as far as leaving relationships and jobs and places, yeah. and even before I got sober, I realized that I was doing this so much. I named it. I started calling it the goodbye apparatus, <laughs> nice. and then that stayed with me until until I I got sober. Yeah. And I think even I even pulled some of that mentality into my sobriety, and I started this. I don't know, recovery binge where I, I journaled and read and saw a therapist and mm-hmm. went to meetings and, right. and then six to nine months into it, I, I thought I was in a far different place than I was and, you know, almost went to blows with my father in a graveyard. And wow. so that was he dead? No, he was living. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So at the time, yeah. so, um, yeah, and, and I feel like that, you know, taking that mentality of wanting to wanting to change, it was, you know, the wanting to change the person that I was. Efforting, right? Yeah. Not too much and, efforting, yeah. And so, you know, now 18 months in, it's become a lot calmer and yeah. a lot more passive. It's not so much trying to change. Yeah. It's just letting this person that I was, you know, come to the surface. Yeah. Yeah, I just... I found all that. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm I'm glad to hear you describe that because it's sort of like affirming what I was kind of trying to talk about, about how, yeah, you can like try too hard and and you you can't speed up the process. And, and, uh, you know, and we live in a culture of like, can I download that, right? And I want to, we want to be able to like download sobriety, right? Download meditation. You know, we think we can download meditation. I mean, there's an app, but it's not really attached to your brain. You know, it's just going in your ears and then anything can happen in there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, my experience of recovery was that there was a first year and that was kind of wacky. And then there was a second year. Stuff started to really change. And at two years, like a lot of bad stuff happened that then transitioned into really good stuff. <laughs> but, it, but it really felt like there was a process that had to unfold that just had its own pace. And that, you know, three years, five years, ten years, that there was this unfolding. And... It, and I th- it's probably still unfolding. Uh, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what's going on now, uh, but you know, I'm I'm clean and sober. And again, to to bring the corollary, the same is true of meditation. That you can, it kind of unfolds with time. And and you know, even if you go, even though I went on a three month retreat a year after learning to meditate, I needed. 15 more years before I was ready to teach anything, you know. I, it, it, I needed the time. Uh, and there's there's no real substitute for that, you know. So, it sounds like you're doing well, though. So, thank you. Well, hey. None of us want to claim to be doing too well. That'd be bad luck. 
It's like when you get a birdie on one hole, the next hole is like a double bogey. You know, just sort of an automatic thing. For those, you know, golfers, I know that a lot of you, a lot of you out here like those similes. So maybe one more, yeah. Hello. Hi. Hi. So my comment kind of touches on what um, uh, the other people had said. And the my meditation tonight was kind of, you know, I had been driving all day and mm-hmm. at school. And when I sat down to meditate, my mind is racing. And uh, I found myself really just putting a lot of effort just to come back to the breath and my focus would only last maybe a minute or two if that and I kept having to catch myself and come back and there was a lot of effort into that of just focusing on my breath well by the time 20 minutes was up I had become too relaxed and Mm -hmm. I was catching myself kind of like leaning over and starting to nod out Mm -hmm. and um I kind of feel like that my experience in sobriety has been similar in that way. Whereas in the beginning, I'm there's a sense of urgency, and you know, partly because of you know the the situations I've you know that um, not being sober has brought you know so much turmoil, um, and then after a period of time the same thing as I'm trying really hard and then as my life begins to kind of come back into order and uh, I start to fall asleep again uh-huh. right. and, and I kind of almost see that happening right now whereas you know things are really have gotten a lot better and I'm you know engaged in a lot of things that are keeping me busy um, I've you know have really started to not focus or be aware of, you know, my practice in sobriety. And so I don't really have a question, but that was just the comment. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. And I think it's a kind of a, something that's fairly common too. That I mean, first of all, your description of the medita- your meditation experience tonight, I think, is very typical. To that you know, and this is one of the great challenges in meditation is to get the energy balanced. And when your energy gets balanced, that's actually kind of when everything kind of you hit the sweet spot. Because, like you said, we t- typically we come in there's like anxious or stressed or whatever, and it's like, okay, I need to calm down. And you relax, and you relax, and then you pass through that, and then you like worn out, and you're falling asleep because you were stressed out, and you needed rest. You need rest, right? So that's we kind of. This is like the the cycle of modern culture going to the extremes, right? And and of course, when we're in our active addiction, it's even more extreme. You know, the the binge and the crash and all that. But as far as um, recovery work goes, this is why having a very simple commitment that we keep showing up 
day by day is so important. That's why one day at a time is so important. Because, it, you know, you work at your program and then, then your life starts to make some sense and you, you get busy and, and everything seems to... It's fine. And you stop addressing the core thing, right? And then that opens up that potential for that, you know, the, the potential for your relapse or just like, or just things kind of going bad again. I, I just, you know, I think that being really clear that the reason our lives are good is because of this basic thing, that everything is built on that, is a really important principle to keep in mind. Uh, and, and that uh, no matter what is going on out there in the world, no matter how great it is or how bad it is, if we take care of the, the, uh, that core spiritual condition of recovery and, and all that it implies, that, we're get, that everything's going to be okay. I mean, the external is always going to be up and down, you know. Uh, life just is that, you know. It's, it's never going to be a steady, steady state of everything being fine or everything being bad, either way. Uh, but what keeps us sane is this, is our, is this spiritual condition that we cultivate, in our recovery, and it's why people make commitments to, you know, be a secretary or to or to do service or to, you know, um, to meditate every day to do, do things that are just very simple that just keep us in track. Um, I mean, this this woman who came, who was in this group today, who had been having a really hard time, is like she obviously like had not sort of touched down. And it was like when she touched down again with a, in a spiritual group, everything kind of like settled again. It was like, oh, this is what I need. And we can, I, it's just so important not to lose touch with that. Um, anyway, I feel like I'm lecturing you and I don't want me to do that. Yeah, I'm rather, I'd rather encourage you. But thank you. So uh, let's just sit back for a moment and... Ah, just gather ourselves. Uh, Just in that spirit of recognizing the value of our practice, our recovery. Just take a moment to see how you're feeling right now. Spending an evening together can be so rejuvenating and so refreshing. A lot of things can fall away. And it's so important to appreciate that and to remember where we get our real sustenance, where the good stuff really comes from. Sometimes I think we you know, we almost deprive ourselves of the spiritual sustenance that 
keeps us going. Somehow we think we need to take care of everything else first. But if we take care of ourselves on this spiritual level, our spiritual condition, everything else tends to take care of itself much more easily. So may we all keep in mind the importance of our practice and our recovery program. May that always be our priority. And just to share that then, share the merit of our practice and our recovery with all beings. Thank you all. Thanks for coming. And I will see you next month. I'll be in Berkeley the fourth Tuesday of this month at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.